fall into the theology bit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what they say. You fall into a bottomless pit, and you die of dehydration. But here, in The Theology Pit, as you well know, we don't believe in that. We believe in drinking fully from the fountain of knowledge. We believe in... Oh, well, I guess the gathering of knowledge from all different perspectives in order to gain clarity in what we view um, God is teaching us, especially about um, being saved, about salvation. This entire series, and I know if you've been listening to The Theology Pit, uh, it feels like the series is never going to end and that we're not going to talk about anything other than you know, how people view the application of the atonement and the implications. And a lot of times I will use one particular theology pit to kind of, um, I guess, like stream off into history a little bit, to the historical aspect of it, so that we can get a better understanding of what is going on within the culture of the time what's going on within um, the psychology. Why are people, why, a lot of times we look at history and we look at different theologies and we look at um, different understandings of how Christ's atonement is applied to us and we do it from the comfort of our own worldview. And when we do that, we, in a way, are are being cultural bigots. Uh, We need to understand their mindset and how they felt about things. With the Anabaptist movement, as harsh as I was last week with it, in a way, I was expressing what the majority of Christianity was thinking about them. And my criticisms, even though they tended to be pretty harsh, a lot of Anabaptists, in a way, had the exact same criticisms. They weren't completely comfortable with the whole idea of a, oh, like a Jedi type of faith, to use a modern analogy, where you just completely clear your mind and there is nothing there. And when I said that if you don't stand for something, then you will fall for anything. And the Anabaptists, I I think that they understood that. And that's why today we're going to talk a little bit about what's called the Schleinheim Confession. Okay, so in the theology pit, I know that we go over a lot of confessions and we talk about a lot of different things. And a lot of times when people want to know about the application of the atonement, I have been doing a a tease, it seems, forever on the governmental view of the atonement. The reason why is because whenever we get all the understandings of the atonement down. We we understand why people gravitate towards them. Then we can take a better look at them and say, okay, is does it make sense? Is it rational? And then once we say, is it rational? We can then say, is it biblical? Is it what is being taught in scripture? 
and is it what's being taught in churches? Because each church has its own different view, its own idea. And it's not because they flat out, I mean, there's a difference between what churches believe, what denominations believe, and what the people in the congregation believe. And a lot of times people judge the denomination by what the congregation thinks and believes. Now, if each member of the congregation had the knowledge to be able to represent the denomination well enough, well, then more than likely they would all be pastors or priests within that denomination. But a lot of times they're not. Um, In America, denominationalism is, in my opinion, few and far between. You can sit in a denomination where, let's say you listen to the Theology Pit and you are, you really like Presbyterianism and, or Lutheranism. Well, I think we spent more time with that. So we could say, okay, you spent more time with Lutheranism. And you're like, okay, I understand how it differs from Roman Catholicism. I'm going to go to a Lutheran church and I'm going to be Lutheran. And you go and you sit under it and you start talking to the people and you're there for like a year and you're listening to the teachings and you know, what's going on in the church and what people are saying, the books that they're reading, what they're studying, how they're approaching scripture, how they're approaching theology. And it starts to dawn on you, wow, Samson's really wrong. This is not what Lutherans believe, what he says they're supposed to believe. These people believe something really different. And you're just like, man, I'm going to stop listening to Theology Pit. And it's like, no, no, no. Okay, don't stop listening to the Theology Pit. What I'm doing is I'm historically going through stuff. I'm kind of saying, hey, this is how it started out. Now here's how it's ending up. And, and this is the reason why. Whenever you have a, a geographic area that's pretty broad, like all of Europe, but you don't have the type of communications that we have today, which actually breaks down a lot of those barriers. I mean, I have people that listen to the theology pit here from other countries, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean. You know, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't a possibility, you know, un- unless I was, you know, really something special, not something that you could just look up and, and, and listen to. But, you know, I was maybe on TV. I was one of these televangelists that are like, the good Lord needs a satellite dish. We, we got to raise the money in order to, you know, broadcast. And, you know, if I was one of those guys, um, you know, I raised a bunch of money and I could do all that. But because of the Internet, it's really broken down a lot of those walls and a lot of those barriers and pretty much anybody in the world can listen to the theology pit and get this understanding. Well, because of that, it's not just the ideas that I'm talking about and and putting forth that may be shaping thoughts, but also other people from different denominations that are true denominationalists, that they stand by, you know, what the Presbyterian church of, you know, hyper-Calvinism or, you know, extended Calvinism, however you want to say, the five-point tulip Calvinists think, and they really push that out there. And it's not that all those ideas are bad, and it's not that all those ideas are good, but if they are heard by somebody who doesn't, has never heard them before, their church doesn't teach it, and they start thinking about it, and they're like, "Mm, yeah, you know what, I I kind of understand that, and it makes more sense. I'm going to be teaching in my church on this particular topic. And this particular topic is actually more palatable if I, 
use this particular theology, while it may not 100% completely agree with the theology that my denomination holds to, it works with what I'm teaching, and it gets my point across, and I'm not trying to change what the denomination believes. I'm just kind of floating that out there. Case in point, um, I go, and I've said this before, to a Presbyterian church, a lot of Calvinists there, uh, predestination you know, is a, a, a big deal, and uh, the concept of predestination that we've talked about is that you know God chooses those who will be re- who will be redeemed, who will be saved, and what this does to free will. And you know, we talked about um, Martin Luther's understanding of free will and Saint Augustine's understanding of free will that there isn't free will, or if there maybe at once was free will, it's totally under bondage. We do not possess free will at all, um, but. In my church, in a class on apologetics that I'm, I'm sitting in in the Sunday school class, um, they keep mentioning free will like it's an actual thing. In my Bible study on Wednesday nights, the majority of people in that Bible study believe in free will as though it's an actual thing. Now, this understanding of free will moves more into what we'll get into later with Jacob Arminius, um, the Arminian position. Uh, We're going to start talking about it because the Anabaptists and the Baptist movement and their ideas and their understanding of free will and, you know, with the scholastics and everything and their their understanding, following more of Erasmus, um, you know, believing in free will is not bad. Don't don't get me wrong. It's just that whenever you're in a particular denomination that holds to a certain theology, it all logically has to make sense in order for you to entertain the, the idea of whether it's true or not. If it doesn't make sense, you can kind of dismiss it and say, well, it's probably not true, or it's just extremely flawed. But um, there are a lot of great men. Um, William Lane Craig is a big proponent of free will. He um, completely rejects uh, Calvinism, uh, you know, what the Presbyterian Church would, would hold to, would find a lot of problems with the Westminster Confession. And he's probably one of the best Christian apologists out there. I really respect him. I just don't agree with him. So when you have people in a, in a church denomination where free will has always been seen as something that we don't have, it's not legitimate. It's, it's an illegitimate concept in there. And people believe that we have it within that denomination, the congregation, and even people teach using that, not trying to prove it, but just assuming it and using it as a teaching aid illustration, uh, that sort of thing, then, you know, you, you ask yourself, how big a deal is denominational theology anymore? I mean, is it that big of an issue that you know, we need to remove people from the church. We need to remove leadership from the church for teaching something that does not line up with the church's theology. And how far do we go with that? Well, the popular opinion from the way churches are and the way that they behave is, no, it's not that big a deal, okay? A lot of churches in America, unless you get to the real hardcore fundamentalist churches, the more Puritan ones, the you know the ones that are very strongly influenced by Anabaptists, uh, those ones will major in the minors. They're the ones who, I mean, they'll have a problem with you if 
you are not reading the King James version of the Bible, the proper authorized version of the Bible, the King James. And they may even have problems with, with certain publications of it. And if something was changed a little bit here or a little bit there or, you know, that is majoring in a minor right there. Majoring in a major would be like, well, if somebody comes in and they say, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. Can I be a member of your church? That's a problem. That's, that's something that they major in. So most churches, I would say, um, hold to and respect the big idea, the big ticket things within Christianity. And you're not going to find any variation there. In that respect, you could probably go to every single Christian church and ask them, does this church believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity? And you will get a 100% response rate of yes. The ones that say no would not be considered Christian churches. I mean, you would really be struggling in the phone book to, you know, find the churches that don't believe that. So in that sense, all churches are the same. They all hold to the exact same thing. Somebody asked me one time, what was the difference between a cult and a denomination? And the difference is this. A denomination views itself as part of the whole, where a cult views itself as the only arbiter of truth. So if somebody is in a cult, it's that their particular cult, their particular small group, they are right, and everybody else in the rest of the world for all of history is wrong. Now, there are some denominations, in my opinion, that get pretty close to cultic status. Um, that's why a lot of people say, well, when it comes to the Mormons, are Mormons Christian? And Mormons absolutely are not Christian. Um, you would have to have a very loose definition of Christianity to make Mormons Christian. First off, I can say that Mormons are not Christian because their founder, Joseph Smith, rejected all... Christianity and all of the creeds and said that they were all in error and they were all wrong and they're not the true church. And he set up the true church. So it's not me saying that they're not Christian. It's their founder saying we are not them. He's the one who made the uh, subject object distinction. It's more palatable and easier for them to get their foot in the door with people and to talk with people if they say, oh, yes, we're Christian, much in the same way that with Jehovah's Witnesses, they would say, yes, we believe in Jesus. And you can say, well, I believe in Jesus, too. Oh, okay, great. We're the same. But then you have to qualify that. You say, well, can I have what's a working definition of the word Jesus, please, from you, Mr. Jehovah's Witness? And they would say, well, I believe that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. And you're like, all right, stop there. We obviously have a different understanding of who Jesus is. With Mormonism, when it comes to God, we have completely opposite understandings of who and what God is. Mormons believe that God was a man who eventually became God, you know, and you had, you know, a spirit father, father God and mother God, and they had their own planet, Earth, that they populated with their spirit babies. So that is very, very different. And Jesus is one of those spirit babies. Lucifer is the brother of Jesus, another spirit baby. And 
so when you get this understanding, uh, you know, you say, well, wow, they really seem to be outside of the quote unquote definition of Christianity. So why do they consider themselves Christian? Well, the reason is because people buy it, you know, um, you know, Glenn Beck is a Mormon, the guys uh, at the blaze that are on the Glenn Beck show and everything. I mean, I, I really enjoy listening to them. I, I think that the blaze as a news network is doing a fantastic job. Um, they're, they're entertaining. They're funny at times to listen to, but they're, they're Mormons. And when they talk about, you know, their faith, they are very careful in how they present it and how they discuss it, because they know that Mormonism is not Christianity as much as they like to say it, that they can say that generically because if people don't know, they accept it. But once they start getting into the fine details of it, that's when, you know, it would really come out that, wow, Mormons are not Christian and they know this. So they stay away from that. You know, they don't talk about, um, you know, how they, you know, uh, do baptisms for the dead um, on, on his program, they wouldn't talk about, um, the, the three different, um, ideas of, of heaven, that there is no hell, but the three different ideas of heaven, that there is the terrestrial, the telestial and the celestial. And that if you, you know, are married in the secret services in the, um, in the temple, and you can spiritually marry other women because polygamy is for the afterlife, then um, you too, if you're a good Mormon and have done all of these things, will be like God is now, and you will have your own planet also that then you can populate with spirit babies and be the God of. Uh, They don't get into that um, because that is not what Christianity is. That's never been what Christianity is taught. Christianity and Judaism are much more similar in their eschatology, their end times understanding than uh, Mormons and Christians are. Um, Within Judaism, they understand that at the end of days, there will be a physical resurrection. We all get our bodies back. Um, They didn't have an understanding of the intermediate state, that there was a concept of heaven that they would go to. And then, um, you, you know, the, then they would be up there, you know, with God awaiting the resurrection. And we, we know this from uh, New Testament passages, um, like uh, in, in, in John, whenever Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, um, he goes and, and Mary's crying, you know, his, his sister, and um, he says to her, uh, you know, why are you weeping? And he goes, Oh Lord, you know, if you, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, you know, Jesus says, or, well, you're going to see your brother again. And she says, yes, Lord, I know at the resurrection, she had no hope of seeing him when she died. Her hope was only at the end of days at the resurrection, she'd be able to find her brother. So we have this understanding. Um, some have nicknamed it like, you know, a, a soul sleep type thing. Um, the old Testament just doesn't have this, you know, intermediate concept. Um, and some churches have picked up on that. Uh, seventh day Adventists are ones that have have picked up on this understanding of soul sleep. They have a lot of legalistic law type things that, that they follow, but we would consider seventh day Adventists within 
the pale of Christianity, even though they believe that, you know, worshiping on Sunday is the mark of the beast and you should, you know, worship on Saturday because that is the Sabbath. That's why, you know, they're called Seventh Day Adventists, um, that the Advent happened on the seventh day. But, um, you know, Saturday is the Sabbath. That's that's when it is. A lot of Christians think that Sunday's the Sabbath, but it's not. Sunday's the first day of the week. It's when the Lord rose. That's why we worship on Sunday. But technically, uh, the Sabbath is on Saturday. And I always sort of find it humorous when I'm in you know, studies where people talk about, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So they say, I won't mow my lawn or do any type of work on Sunday out of respect for the Lord. And it's like, well, the Sabbath is Saturday. You really shouldn't do anything on Saturday if you want to hold to that, you know. Um, but whenever you have uh, these separatist-type movements, like we saw in Munster from from last week, people just don't uh, think about what they're doing and, and what's going on and, you know, what's the difference between a denomination and what's the difference between a cult and how a lot of denominations kind of overlap one another. So as you're listening through the theology pit, my whole point of this is um, when I'm talking about the genesis of a lot of these movements, it's not necessarily what exists today. When we talked a lot about the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent uh, did a good job in working out a lot of the problems that the church had in the 13th, 14th, and 15th centuries and even into the 16th centuries, okay? And it was a very significant council. Um, the Jesuits had a, a big part to play in that. Um, they were a very interesting organization. Maybe one day we'll, we'll talk about them. But that was probably uh, you know, one of the biggest councils until you know, Vatican II uh, came out in the, in the 1960s in, what they, in, in their reforming of themselves. And they... So, so, you know, when I'm talking about um, Roman Catholicism and you would go to look at that and you see, what, they don't do indulgences anymore. They don't you know, do all this. Stuff. And it's like, yeah, even when talking with some older Catholics, I've noticed that sometimes you can see if someone's a pre-Vatican II or a post-Vatican II Catholic. You get that understanding on whether the mass should be said in Latin or if it should be said in the vernacular. Um, but, you know, you start to get these different ideas. So... Um, when I'm talking about the Baptists and the Anabaptists, I'm not talking about them today. That's a different understanding. And when we get into the governmental view and we talk about Arminianism, you're going to start to see things just a little bit closer. But the problem that the Anabaptists had and the problem that was going on with this new movement of the Reformation was that... Um, you would start to see the same problems that they were having when the church first came about. Um, if you remember way, way back in the theology pits when we were talking about, you know, the different heresies at the time and them being condemned and, you know, what was going on with all that and how they'd be excommunicated and, you know, they'd be um, you know, run out of the run out of the city, run out of the, the country. Kings would throw them out like they'd just be exiled the reason why is because there really wasn't anything that was kind of you know, set in stone. It was written down how to do church, um, what exactly to believe. I mean, different, as we saw, different time periods brought about different things. And, you know, one bad apple can ruin the whole barrel, can ru ruin the whole bunch. And, you know, we saw that in, in Munster because 
what happened with Munster was that these bad apples here and what happened with this polygamy kind of ruined it for all of anabaptism. I mean, anabaptism was somewhat tolerated. It was, it would have been tolerated better if you didn't have Munster occurring. And I mean, the big problem with Munster is like when you look at people proclaiming to speak for God and to be a prophet and that, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks to them and, you know, God speaks to them and all that stuff. Well, we saw that again, you know, back in the, um, the, the second century, of course, if you remember the, uh, the Montanists, uh, they were the ones who were saying that they were the promised paraclete, the, um, the, the Holy Spirit, um, that, you know, their, their prophet uh, was, you know, God was speaking to him. They had some, you know, interesting teachings, if, if you remember. One of them most notably for what we're talking about was this idea of the priesthood of all people. I mean, I think that they got that right in a way, but whenever you're in a time of, I guess, would you consider heresy hunting? You know, you really don't want to do anything that would associate yourself with any particular heresy because just by default, you know, you could be said to be yeah, part of them. They, you know, it's like you have someone that they reject everything in Christianity and, but say, we believe the Bible. And then you say, you believe the Bible and they say, Oh, so you're just like those heretics. And it's like, well, no, just because we happen to agree on one thing, but you know, um, Montanus, uh, he saw himself as a prophet, um, that he was the Holy Spirit who Christ, you know, promised he was speaking through God. Um, he was very, uh, strict in the way that people should live, uh, very legalistic in that sense. And, it, you know, they did the things where, you know, speaking in tongues and, you know, all that stuff and being nuts. So, you see that popping up again in history with the Anabaptists and with, with Munster. And later on, you know, when you see that with the charismatic movement and, you know, people saying that they are prophets, which are people who are speaking for God and, you know, prophetesses and, you know, all these things, it's, it, you can see that there's really nothing new under the sun. Everything just kind of, you know, recycles itself in a way. And, you know, Speaking harshly, again, like about the Anabaptists, like I said, um, the Anabaptists knew that they had a problem, okay? And that they, if you view them, I, th I think as history should, as, as people do, as the reformers of the Reformation, well, it turned out that they could see these problems coming up. And that they needed a reformation for the reformers of the Reformation. So the Reformation of the Reformation already needed a reformation, or rather a proper formation. That's how I've uh, written it here. So we have to enter um, a, a couple people into our discussion. And one of them is a man by the name of Menno Simons. And Menno Simons... Um, S-I-M-O-N-S, -S. okay? He had some ideas about what Anabaptist, 
anabaptism was and what it should be. One of his positions was an unswerving, he was unswerving in his commanding of pacifism, saying, if you are going to be an Anabaptist, you, we are 100% nonviolent. Okay. None, none of this. No, we don't, we don't fight people. We don't fight each other. We don't fight enemies. We turn the other cheek. We do not fight. And because of him going around and preaching this and insisting on it and doing so much work for it, his name um, came to stand for, you know, the, the repudiation of all violence, you know, and if, if you want, if, if it's not clicking yet, the Mennonites come from Menasimus. The Mennonites are the Amish community. Amish and Mennonites are, are different. I think there's 30 different flavors, if, if you will like, of um, Mennonites. I live in uh, western Pennsylvania, you know, Pittsburgh area here, and we there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch here. Um, I've lived in towns where you know when it's springtime because you hear the, you know, uh, clop, clop, clop sound of the horses and the buggies going up and down the streets. You, you know, they're, they're out. Um Amish farms all over the place, Amish um, stores and you know, bakeries and all sorts of stuff, uh, furniture stores that deal specifically with Amish furniture, um, barns, houses, all kinds of things. You see the Amish making them all over the place. Fantastic people and, you know, fantastic craftsmen. Uh, but they are separatists in the sense of the world, not in the sense of their theology. Their theology is interesting. It's a lot more apophatic, a lot more mystery to it. But they would hold to something called the Schleinheim Confession. Okay. Now, in 1527, Michael Sattler helped to um, put together the Schleinheim Confession. And um, four months later, he was burned at the stake. Uh, burning at the stake was a, a big deal. Um, not only were the Anabaptists, you know, kind of bad with a lot of their stuff, um, you know, the, with, with Munster, with, with the fighting and, you know, everything that they were doing and, and people putting them to death. But um, it's not like Calvinism gets off scot-free. Um, when you look at the, um, the, the, the story of uh, Servetus, um, with John Calvin, um, he went to Geneva. He escaped from Spain because they were persecuting him. They were going to kill him. Um, he denied the Trinity. I think he denied the deity of Christ. Um, but he considered himself to be a Christian. And, you know, here he went to Geneva where he thought it was a place that would be tolerant because it's full of reformers who the Roman Catholic church was doing that to them. But, um, you know, what should have happened, and Luther even said this about him, that he should just be exiled. He should be, you know, excommunicated from the church and exiled from the land. Just kick him out. Um, Calvin really should have pushed for that, but he didn't. He pushed for decapitation and said, no, he should be decapitated. Philip Melanchthon, who came after Luther, was like, I'm glad of what happened to him. And he was burned at the stake. Um, so it was, it was worse. I mean, Calvin, I guess in that time, as we saw, was trying to be merciful and saying, just cut his head off. 
Um, it's, it's a weird period though, when you have these type of new ideas going out that you need some type, some type of standard and something has to be set in stone. And by using the mixing of the church and state where the church can wield the sword of the state, this is another problem that the Anabaptists had and why the Schleidheim confession is such a big deal because they didn't want to see stuff like this happening. They're like, no, we need to totally be separate. Um, the Puritans come out of this version of Anabaptism. Um, you get the pilgrims that come out of it that, you know, came to America um, and set up flourishing colonies and, you know, the, the Mayflower and all that stuff. Uh, they dabbled in communism, which was, you know, a big part of Anabaptism, and it almost killed them. And after the first year, the pilgrims had to abandon uh, communism because it didn't work and um, everybody was dying. So they went to um, individual liberty and personal property rights. And um, then it, it started flourishing because not only was everybody able to grow food and help themselves, but they would have enough that they were able to help their neighbors as well. And I think that this is really what gets to the essence of Anabaptism at this time period. It's not something where they were wanting to be ignorant. They were just wanting to be biblical. They're, they're doing their best. They're, they're trying to. Um, this residual uh, thought pattern, I guess you could say, that's left over from it. You know, that's what I, I, I have a concern with. It's what I have a beef with, I guess you could say. And you would think that with the time that we live in, the technology that we live in, I mean, a lot of us have a device in our pocket that has all the knowledge in, in the world we can access. If we want, we can learn about this stuff. We can know our history. We can know these things. And all we do is you know, fight with people online and you know, post pictures of cat videos. That's what we tend to do, which is always you know, the kind of the joke that you know, if somebody came to the future from 60 years ago, what would be the hardest thing to explain to them? And that would be it. I have this device in my pocket where I have all the knowledge in the world. I can know anything, and I use it to fight with strangers online about ridiculous things half the time and post pictures of cats. People wouldn't understand that. But I find cat videos to be hilarious. I can watch them all day long. But um, the Anabaptists, if you take their purest understanding of what they think doing church is, I want to kind of give them that grace here. And I want to go over the tenets of the Schleinheim Confession and what they held to and why, and kind of evaluate it with what we've learned so far with the application of the atonement and where exactly it fits in. Because I think, as you'll see, in some ways it's going forwards and in some ways it's going backwards. It's, it's a very, it's very weird at this time period when you have stuff like this, where you have things that are so advanced and at the same time they are so regressive that, you know, it's very difficult to separate it. It's funny, I have to keep pausing the recording because I can hear my dog going crazy and my kids, you know, screaming up there and everything. My wife says, you know, you should build yourself a soundproof room. And I'm starting to, starting to think, yeah, you know what, maybe I should for when I, when I do these. It always makes me want to pause. But um, 
let's take a look at the Schleinheim confession. There are seven points that we want to take a look at, and we'll go over each one of them to see what they put down and say, you know what, we need to actually hold to something and we need to believe something. We'll do it right after this. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right. So the Schleinheim Confession. All right. This was written in uh, 1527. February 24th and the seven uh, parts that it has in it um, that it goes over uh, are in this order, which is it, which is a very interesting order. Whenever you look at um, statements of faith of churches or doctrines of churches, also take care to notice what the particular order that they have them in, because a lot of times it's either what they see theologically as most important, or they see it systematically as what needs to proceed first before, you know, anything else comes. With the Anabaptists, if I were to give you three guesses on what do you think the first article would talk about with the Anabaptist movement, I guarantee everybody would say baptism. And you're absolutely right. This is the start for them. This is what they believe to be the most important thing out of anything else within Christianity. It's to observe baptism. Now, their understanding of baptism is believer's baptism, adult baptism, as we understood from the you know, last theology pit. So it reads like this. Baptism shall be given to all those who have learned repentance and amended of life. Okay, and amendments of life, sorry. So what is that telling us right off the bat? Baptism is giving all those who have learned repentance. Repentance is turning away from, and it's repentance of sin. So you no longer sin anymore. You can't because if you continue to sin, then you haven't truly repented. Um, They may not take it that far, but we'll, as we walk through this, you'll say, gee, I wonder how far they're actually taking that. Okay, so... That's the first half sentence in the beginning. Second part of that is, and who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ. Another wording to pay attention to. Those who believe truly that their sins are taken away by Christ. And to all those who walk in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and wish to be buried with him in death so that they may be resurrected with him to all those who with this significance, this significance requested baptism of us and demand it for themselves. This excludes all infant baptism, the highest and chief abomination of the Pope. In this, you have the foundation and testimony of the apostles. And then they cite uh, scripture verses, uh, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Acts 2, 8, 16, 19. 
Uh, and then it says, this we wish to hold simply yet firmly with assurance. Now, I haven't looked any of these up, but um, Matthew 28, I believe it's talking about um, the example of Noah and going through the flood and escaping the flood as through the waters. Um, so they're equating that with the waters of baptism that, you know, escaping the, uh, the condemnation to come. Uh, Mark chapter 16, they are using the variant I'm guessing, um, I think it's verses 9 through 22 in Mark chapter 16, which shouldn't be in your Bible. Um, they are not found in the earliest manuscripts. They're a variant that was added in there and a more of a summary. It talks about handling snakes and drinking poison and, um, you know, baptizing and that sort of thing. But the way that they're using baptism, it's a repent and baptize uh, type thing. Um, Acts 2 uh, that's dealing with um, the speaking in tongues. I, I believe it's of Pentecost and uh, people who were you know, confessing and being baptized there. 8, 16, and 19 also uh, reiterate a lot of that stuff and, and hold to it. If I'm remembering my Bible correctly, uh, you may look this up and say, hey, you're totally wrong. All right, send me an email and, and you know I'll, I'll correct that in future ones. It's just I'm just reading through their confession and kind of, you know, talking through it with you here and, uh, and, and taking it apart. So the second one is, says that we agree as follow on the ban. Okay. So this is on excommunication. So the first thing that's important to them is baptism of true believers, people who really believe. And for some reason they say infant baptism is the chief abomination. We don't know why yet that they believe that in their, theology. It hasn't said. It's just saying that, no. And I guess the implication is because they're saying that you have to have learned repentance and you have to truly believe that your sins are taken away by Christ. And children can't do that. Infants can't do that. So here's how they ban people. The ban shall be employed with all those who have given themselves to the Lord to walk in his commandments and with all those who are baptized into the one body of Christ and who are called brethren or sisters, and yet who slip sometimes and fall into error and sin, being inadvertently overtaken. Okay, so what this is saying is that if you are part of their group, you have been baptized in that one body of Christ. You are part of their group a Christian, and therefore this type of church discipline can be uh, used on you, and you would uh, agree to it. Um, if you fall into sin, they will ban you. They will excommunicate you, kick you out. And it's interesting when it says who are called brethren and sisters, because you know if you are in a Anabaptist church or a church that gets a lot of its identity from Anabaptism, you will have brother this and brother that, and sister this and sister that. Um, my wife and I were part of a charismatic Pentecostal church for three years, very steeped in the Anabaptist tradition. And I was brother Samson, she's sister Tanya. I mean, we had that sort of thing. So if you go to someone and they're just like... Um, you know, or you're at church with someone and they see someone and they're like, oh, brother so-and-so. You're just like, or sister so-and-so. That's how they introduce you. I am sister this or lady that or what. Okay, that's this Anabaptist understanding. All right. 
Uh, so it continues to say, uh, the same shall be admonished twice in secret and the third time openly disciplined or banned according to the man- command in Christ of Matthew 18. And that's where, you know, two or more are gathered in my name. There I am with you always. And that is dealing. That's actually a, a proper translation of that uh, or a proper application, I should say, of, of that verse in, in kicking people out of the church. That really doesn't have anything to do with, with prayer um, per se. But this shall be done in according, according to the regulation of the Spirit, Matthew 5, before the breaking of bread, so that, many, so that we may break and eat one bread with one mind and in one love and may drink one cup. So before you don't sit down and break bread with them. You don't do that. And within the Amish communities, you do have this type of shunning and excommunication and those, those sort of things. Okay. So... Number three, it's the breaking of bread, okay, is in, in the breaking of bread, we're one mind and are agreed as follows. All those who wish to break one bread in remembrance of the broken body of Christ and all who wish to drink of one drink as a remembrance of the shed blood of Christ shall be united beforehand by baptism in one body of Christ, which is the church of God and whose head is Christ. First, Paul points out, we cannot... At the same time, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the devil. That is, all those who have fellowship with the dead works of darkness have no part in the light. Therefore, all who follow the devil and the world have no part with those who are called to God out of the world. All who lie in evil have no part in the good. Therefore, it is and must be thus. Whoever has not been called by God to one faith to one baptism, to one spirit, to one body, with all the children of God's church, cannot be made into one bread with them, as indeed must be done if one is truly to break bread according to the command of Christ. Now, you notice how this is following its, its logical thought. It's, it's starting with baptism and saying, we all have to be baptized in the Christ. And then it's going into the excommunication. So with this understanding of the ban, it is the excommunication, rather. <clears throat> I'll just say that. It's kind of easier to, uh, I don't know, to say in my, in my mind to understand. Um, they're, they're following that logical progression that, okay, you've been baptized into Christ. So now you're, you're one of us. You're a Christian, okay, um, unless you're not a Christian. Okay, and if there's a problem, then you are removed. And there's a reason why we remove you because, you know, communion is only with those who are Christians. We are not to um, have the Lord's Supper with people who are not Christians. We are not to fellowship with them in this way. Um, If you are not a Christian, you are not welcome at the communion table because it is only for that reason to remember um, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. So you can see how this is kind of walking out. It's like one is you know, moving on to the other, moving on to the other. And with this last little uh, section here, it gives that logical thought because if you've been called by one God to one faith, Okay, and and what is that? Well, it's the Anabaptist faith to one baptism. What is that one baptism? It's believer's baptism only to one spirit. Okay, to one body, 
with all of God's church cannot be made into one bread with them. Indeed, it must be uh, done if one is truly to break bread according to the commandment of Christ. So you want to be pure. And this is where we're starting to get this understanding of Puritan and, you know, why the separation and the emphasis that comes up on um, the, the legalistic aspect of it. You have to have this right belief. I mean, think back to the, uh, the, the Vantians and the Donatists in the uh, third century and fourth uh, century um, where they were saying, no, we have to behave a certain way. We have to be you know, right. We don't want those Christians that rejected during times of persecution. They need to stand firm. So um, the fourth uh, article says, uh, let me get the summary. The fourth article is separation from the abomination. Okay, so, you know, we have this breaking of bread thing so that we can commune with one another. But now we have to talk about separation. And a separation shall be made from all evil and from the wickedness which the devil planted in the world. In this manner, simply that we shall not have fellowship with them, the wicked, and not run with them in the multitude of their abominations. This is the way it is. Since all who do not walk in the obedience of faith and have not united themselves with God so that they wish to do his will are a great abomination before God. It is not possible for anything to grow or issue from them except abominable things. For truly all creatures are but two classes, good and bad, believing and unbelieving, darkness and light, the world and those who have come out of the world. God's temple and idols, Christ and Baal, and none can have part with the other. Now, this really is pushing against Luther's understanding of simile usta et peccator. At the same time, I am justified and a sinner. Um, that we are positionally righteous with God. That God has declared us to be righteous, and therefore we are. They, with this idea here of this separation... And this and Puritanism as a whole rejects justification by faith. They, whenever you look at Anabaptism at this time, and a lot of churches that hold to Anabaptism, they, and this is why I've said before in other pits, and I've gone off about it in the pits of conception, that if you hold to um, this idea of justification by faith, you will change the definition of it to it's your faith that you are justified by and not by the faithfulness of Christ. And there's a reason for that because you have to change your behavior. You have to be right or you're not a part of it because there are no good or bad. It's, it's, it's either black or white. That's how the Puritans are seeing things because that's how the Anabaptists see things. And this is more... If you've ever been in a situation with Christians like that or with denominations like that, it's because of this Anabaptist movement that is uh, coming through here. goes on to say, To us then command of the Lord is clear when he calls upon us to be separate from the evil, and thus he will be our God and we shall be his sons and daughters. Again, we are separated from the evil because he has called us to be separated from the evil, so it's up to us to do it, and then we will be his sons and daughters. This starts to turn into what's looking like what we would call a works-based salvation. Um, it is, and I'm I'm going to expound on that maybe a little bit more before this pit ends. But I kind of want to 
keep moving through this thing. So I'm just going to jump down to the last uh, section of, of this section. Therefore, we will also unquestionably fall from us the unchristian, devilish weapons of force, such as the sword, armor, and the like, and all their use, either for friends or against one's enemies, by virtue of the word of Christ, resist him, resist not him that is evil. Okay, so they're saying that they're separating from the world. The world uses the sword. We will not use the sword. We are spiritual. Article 5. It talks about pastors in the church. Okay, so we are agreed as fellows, uh, as follows on the pastors in the church of God. The pastor in the church of God shall, as Paul prescribed, be one who out and out has a good report of those who are outside the faith. This office shall be to read, to admonish and teach, to warn, to discipline, to ban in the church, to lead out in prayer for the advancement of all the brethren and sisters, to lift up bread when it is broken, and in all things to see and care for the body in Christ in order that it may be built up and developed and the mouth of the slanderer may be stopped." This one, moreover, shall be supported of the church which has chosen him, wherein he may be in need, so that he who serves the gospel may live of the gospel as the Lord has ordained. But if a pastor should do something requiring discipline, he shall not be dealt with except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And when they sin, they shall be disciplined before all in order that others may fear." Pastors here are being held to a higher standard. This uh, rings of James chapter 3. And here's the last part of it. But should it happen through the cross, this pastor should be banished or led to the Lord through martyrdom. Another shall be ordained in his place in the same hour so that God's little flock and people may not be destroyed. This was obviously happening so much within the Anabaptist movement that they had to... Uh, do this, that they had to put this in their, in their confession. And now we move to the sword of, of the state. Um, the sword is ordained of God outside the perfection of Christ. It punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In the law, the sword was ordained for the punishment of the wicked and for their death. And the same sword is now ordained to be used by the worldly magistrates. So just to sum this up, because this, this section gets a little bit, a little bit worthy, wordy, I should say. Um, they're basically saying that Christ does not allow us to do anything that uses the sword of the world because we are not worldly. So um, Christ didn't pass judgments on people. So therefore, we shouldn't pass judgment on people. Um, it says that in here, um, also Christ says to the heathenish woman who was taken in adultery, not that one should stone her according to the law of his father. And yet he says, as the father has commanded me, thus I do, but in mercy and forgiveness and warning to sin no more. That's interesting. Another interesting proof text that they use. That's what's considered a variant. That's not supposed to be in your Bible. The story of the woman caught in the act of adultery is not found in the earliest manuscripts. And in some manuscripts, it's found in Luke and not in John. 
So when people say things like that, um, well, he, well, you know, I thought you're supposed to be a Christian. He was without sin, cast the first stone. Are you saying you don't sin? It's like, yeah, that's not supposed to be in your Bible. Okay. Um, there are some Bibles that take it out, but they don't sell very well. So, you know, people have an emotional attachment to that. I mean, Mel Gibson couldn't even make a movie about the passion of the Christ, which doesn't even deal with that. Uh, part of, of Christ's life it, within the uh, Gospel of John without putting it in to the Passion of the Christ. It had to be a flashback moment. I mean, people just love that story. Um, but here, like the variant in uh, uh, Mark 16 that shouldn't be in your Bible, here's another section should be in your Bible that they're using as a proof text on why you know they should not use the sword, why they should not condemn people. Um and they also say that they should not be um, chosen as a magistrate. They shouldn't be. Uh, they shouldn't fight in um, the military. Uh, they shouldn't be a, a part of that. So you will never see the Amish in the military. You'll never see the Amish uh, on a um, a jury. Um, you you won't see them doing that because they say, well, we cannot be in judgment of anyone. Only God sits in judgment. And then finally, the, uh, the last part of it is their oath, the, the seventh uh, article. Um, the oath is a confirmation among those who are quarreling and making promises. In the law, it is commanded to be performed in God's name, but only in truth, not falsity. Christ, who teaches perfection of the law, prohibits all swearing to his followers, whether true or false, neither by heaven, nor by the earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor by our head and that for the reason he shortly thereafter gives you are not able to make one hair white or black so you see it is for this reason that all swearing is forbidden we cannot fulfill that which we promise when we swear for we cannot change even the very least thing uh, the very least thing on us so what they're saying is that they are not able to swear allegiance to the flag or an allegiance to a head of state or anything, you know, of that uh, aspect. And they can't say, you know, what one thing is or is not definitively. Because at the end of this, concerning the oath, it also says, Christ also taught along the same line when he said, let your communication be yay, yay, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. He says, your speech or word shall be yea and nay. However, when one does not wish to understand, he remains closed to the meaning. Christ is simply yea and nay. And all those who seek him simply will understand his word. Amen. That's what it says at the end. So that's what you're saying, that if you don't understand this and you want us to yeah, swear an oath to something or explain something, look, you're Christians, you're true Christians, uh, you will be saved and you will understand these things. And that's how we know that you're saved because you understand these things. But if you look at what the Anabaptists have done, they have now taken the understanding that Luther had of justification by faith alone. And they've thrown it out and just said, no, we don't understand this, so therefore we reject it. The problem that you have is now you are going back in time. You are looking at the advancements that the Holy Spirit has done through his people, through all of history, and said that, no, that is no good. And we are going back to the beginning. 
and what they thought at the beginning. Now, the thing about what Luther uh, discovered and brought to light within Scripture, one of Luther's books, favorite books that he preached on, that he preached through, um, I have copies of his uh, commentary on is the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is very interesting because the book of Galatians has a lot of problems. They're, they're the Galatians, the people of Galatia have a lot of problems that the Anabaptists have. Okay. And Paul's trying to straighten them out because a lot of people got these problems and, and, if you don't understand the doctrine of justification, it becomes very difficult to understand what Paul is saying here in the book of Galatians. In my Bible study, when we got to this, everybody had a hard time with it. I, I had to explain it, and, and you know, it, it took a little while for it to click, for everyone to really understand it. Even in the study guide that we had, it said that, well, this particular verse is very hard to understand, so we're just going to kind of skip it. We're just going to glaze over it. I'm just like, no, I just you know, explained what it was. And here's what's going on is that um, in Galatians uh, chapter two. Okay. Well, he's uh, maybe you don't know the book of Galatians. Okay. People in Galatia are um, you know, believing a different gospel. Okay. They're, they, uh, Paul preached to them. They accepted the gospel of Christ. And then other people came later on, um, Judaizers that they were called and were saying things that they had to do these other things in order to be Christians. They had to add to more or less the, the gospel. And a lot of people look at that and say, Oh, that's so bad. You know, they weren't Christians. Well, no, Paul says that they were Christians still. He calls them brothers and sisters, which means that even if you don't believe properly, you are still a Christian. Okay. If you, hold to the understanding of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that it's the forgiveness of sins and, and all that. You're still a Christian. You're just believing wrong, and he's kind of going over that with him. But in chapter 2, um, he starts to talk about how he chastised Peter, who was there, and he was eating with the Gentiles until other Jews showed up. And then he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore because it was unlawful a Jewish law for him, for a Jew to eat with Gentiles. So he totally separates from them. Now, it, it goes on to say um, about that in uh, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15 of Galatians, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners. Is Christ not the one who encourages sin? Is Christ then the one who encourages sin? Absolutely not. But if I build up again those things I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. For though, for through the law I died, and to the law, so that I may live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the body, I live because of the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside God's grace because if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, if you're reading along with me, or if you're going to Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, I read, and you're reading that and saying, you know what? My version doesn't say that. My version says, you know, faith in Christ. The reason why the translators of my Bible, which is the New English translation, the Net Bible, did wrote it this way, translate it this way, is because Christ is the object of this section, not us. And so by saying that it's faith in Christ that we're justified. What it's saying is that this passage is about us, but it's not about us. That's the point that Paul's making. So it's properly trans translated when it's talking about faith. It's the faithfulness of Christ and not our faith. It's the faithfulness that is within Christ that he has. It's his faithfulness. If he was faithful, if he was right. And this is what Luther was understanding. And he's like, no, it's, it's all God. It's not us. So the hard one comes in uh, verse um, 17. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners. Well, what does that mean? I thought that, you know, if you believe in Jesus, then you're saved. That's what you have to do. And, and Paul's saying, no, he's like, look, let me... And, and let me let me summarize it like this so you can get an understanding of what justification by faith means. And we've gone over that a lot in the theology pit, and I just want to clarify it using this example uh, that, that Paul uses. Let's say you have the law, and you have to obey and keep the law. Okay, is it those ceremonial practices that make the law wrong? Or is it trying to live up to whatever those ceremonial practices are? It's the latter. That's what Paul is saying that it's not the what you're doing, but it's the structure of what you're doing. Christ came and fulfilled all of that so that we don't have to. But if we then take that structure and say, okay, great, great. Christ fulfilled that structure. I'm now going to construct a whole new structure around belief in Christ and that that's called Christianity. And then that's what I believe. Paul's saying, no, you're, you're sinning by doing that. You're still as wrong. You're still trying to be justified by the law. You are trying to make up a structure of behavior and obedience and things and calling it Christianity and saying that I have to behave this way and saying, well, it's different from the law or it's different from what everybody else has done. Paul's saying, no, it's not. You're still a sinner. You're still doing that. You think that you should continue doing that and call yourself a Christian and that by doing that, that Christ actually encourages you to be under a different law? That's why he says, is Christ then the one who encourages sin? Absolutely not. That is considered sinful. You trying to come up with a different formula to save yourself. You don't do that. And that's why verse 18, which our study guide said is a hard verse to understand. But if I build up again those things I once destroyed, I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. And I was like, why does the study guide find this hard to understand? Oh, it's because the authors of the study guide don't understand the doctrine of justification. That's really the only reason. Because what that's saying is... Okay, I build up again, I make up a new structure and call it Christianity, and, and, and it's the structure that I destroyed within Christ because I was in Christ because Christ died for us, 
Christ fulfilled that. He did that. And then I build it up again. Well, then what that says is that I demonstrate that I am the one who breaks God's law. I've done it again. If you break one part of the law, it's as though you've broken the whole law. But this is why God judges us on the faithfulness of Jesus and not of our own faith or of our own doing or what we're doing. The Anabaptists did not understand that. Luther had a hard time understanding it. Paul, I think, has a hard time understanding it. Peter definitely did. I mean, he talks about that in his letters. What Paul says is very difficult to understand. But when Paul explained this to the disciples, they said, okay, well, it's hard to understand, but we, God's grace is with you. We see the, the works that are being done, and that's giving evidence that what you're saying is true, even though it's difficult for us to understand, because it's backwards for us. The, the test to see if you have explained the gospel correctly to someone is if when you're done, they say, so are you just telling me I can do whatever I want? I can live however I want and just do whatever and I'm, I'm saved? I can just keep sinning and I'm, and I'm, I'm good because God made me positionally righteous because he declared that? Yeah, you've explained it right. That's the gospel. That's what it means. You're, you're not going to want to. That's, that's the second part of it. The sanctification aspect of it, the faith that God has given you is not foreign to, you know, what has has come to you. It is something that you want to exercise where you don't want to do those things. You, it's, it's, it's this change of worldview. It's this different want that you have. Yes, you are technically allowed, but you never, you don't, you no longer want to. It's, and it's something to work on. If you still want to, but you're like, huh, maybe I shouldn't want to do that. It's something that you struggle with. Yeah, it's evidence that you have been justified. So Paul had this problem all the time. He would explain it, and then he anticipated the questions coming. So what then? You're saying that we can just keep sinning so that grace may abound? I mean, that's what people kept saying to him. And he's like, no, it's not so grace can abound. You're, you're missing the point. The point is that Jesus did it all. And like the Anabaptists totally missed this point, they then come up with this new structure and this new law. And it's this new structure and this new law that has been permeating the church since this time. And this is what the big problem with Anabaptism is and why it's gone backwards, in my opinion, why Christianity has gone backwards theologically um, since really the time of Luther's apex there. All right. So, hey, hear the music. Uh, Visit me. Uh, Facebook, The Theology Pit, email me, samson at samsonstick.com. And uh, next time, I, we'll get into the governmental view, I, I promise. I know I, I keep saying that, but I want to talk more about the Xanabaptism and, and you know, what they really held to give a fair shake. So now it's definitely time for me to close down the pit.